My fingers fumble just a bit as I tie on a small Elcare caddis. You know, sun's out and midday temps hover right around 60 degrees. I love this time of year. Sun on my face and a chill on my legs as I stand knee-deep in moving water. Zero deadlines and no stress as I throw a short three-weight cast. Suddenly, the first fish of the year rises. Those are the sensations of trout fishing. Today, angler Dave Anderson joins me to share his favorite yarns from the trout streams. He is a longtime guide who's explored darn near every piece of water in Minnesota's driftless area. Dave shares some of his best fishing advice and gives us great perspective on the state of the state of Minnesota trout streams. Dave, thanks for joining us today. How the heck have you been? I'm guessing you've been on the water. I just got done with a uh, week-long spring break so from school, so I, I, I got a fair share last week. I wouldn't say the weather was super awesome, but it was still uh, good to get out there and catch some fish. All right. We're going to talk all about trout fishing and the state of quality of our streams, a lot of things, but... Before we get to that, I want to kind of go back in time with you. Um, did you fish as a kid? I actually grew up fishing uh, the Central Lakes area as a kid with a cane pole and a bobber and no hook attached to it at the at probably age three or four, uh, sitting in the back of the boat with my dad and my grandpa at the front of the boat. And then when you uh, get old enough, you you get uh, promoted to the front of the boat, which which in that era meant you also had anchor duty. Uh, <laughs> you di you didn't know that at the time, but just getting up in the front and having your own wheelhouse was was fun. So I I grew up doing lake fishing. I grew up in Kellogg, Minnesota, which is obviously Mississippi River country. So I did a fair share of river fishing. Uh, it wasn't until I was probably eleven or twelve that my my grandfather got me into trout fishing, which at that point was just a simple spinning rod and a small spinner with maybe a chunk of chunk of worm attached to it. And then from there, you know, I think if you get into the sport, you have to start somewhere. And for a lot of us, it is just a worm and a hook and then it's spinners. And then ultimately I at my last stop, which is fly fishing. Do you remember the first trout you caught? I do. I was in central Wisconsin with my grandfather. It was near the Amory area. Uh, and it was a brook trout stream, so the very first uh, trout I did catch was a brook trout. What kind of fight was it? Where were you? What What was the moment like for you? You know, it was a weird day because I had a I had a uh, the old school Zebco thirty three type reel, <laughs> and I remember the nut on my reel fell off. So reeling was a little bit complicated <laughs> without having all the proper gear because the handle uh, would literally pop off. I'm guessing. Yeah, the handle popped off, so you had to make sure when you reel when you were reeling, you had to have your hand on the handle. You couldn't reel freely. Um, I remember it was a small stream in the woods. Uh, we hiked in a ways. Uh, I didn't know what to do or what I was expecting. But I just watched a little bit, and he threw out a spinner and kind of bounced it back. And I started doing the same. And out of a undercut bank, a little fish appeared and happened to eat my worm, and I reeled him in and. That was the first step in a very interesting journey. What, what is it about trout? Why did they change us? I think some of it has to do with just the terrain and the landscape. You know, we were talking off air about summer plans. Uh, 
the Driftless, I'll get to that in a second. The Driftless to me is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's not like anywhere else in Minnesota. It's not Central Lakes country. It's not North Shore. It's bluffs, it's hills, it's terrain. Um, and if you fish year round, like I do, the beauty of it is the changing of the seasons. Right now, I give people the analogy, it's like fishing on the moon because everything's so white. Um, but then spring comes, the snow will melt here in a couple weeks, things start greening up, and then you're into summer. Uh, and then the fall season with the leaves changing, I think it's just where it takes you. Um, and it's taken me all over Southeast Minnesota, some Northeast Iowa, Western Wisconsin, but obviously some of my more recent trips have been West and just the terrain there, the, the landscape, the beauty, uh, high elevation mountain stuff. Uh, it, it can take you just about anywhere. And the, the hard part is now when my wife wants to plan a vacation, I automatically get out a map and start eyeballing if there's water to fish everywhere we go. So for people who may have heard the term driftless, but don't mm -hmm. quite understand it, explain what that's all about. Another name for driftless is karst topography, which is we're a heavily limestoned and, and hilly area in Southeast Minnesota. It's, it's basically an unglaciated part of the world. We don't have lakes. Uh, any lake you find in the southeast corner is probably a man-made lake. But the one thing we do have is water, and it's all, it's all spring-fed limestone creeks, and that water's got to come somewhere. So, you, you know, you take the, the Zumbro watershed or the Whitewater watershed or the River watershed out of the equation, those big rivers, everything flows into those. So all these little spring creeks that, that dot the landscape of Southeast Minnesota all come out of the ground and gain some steam and roll downhill. And, and uh, that's how we, we get what we have. If, if people have never been here and, and having guided for over 25 years, people are pretty amazed at the, at, at what we have done here. Even Minnesotans who've never been to Southeast Minnesota uh, will just comment like, man, this is just a very different world than what they're used to. That's what I love about our state, right? The, the four corners are so unique and different from each other. Exactly. Everyone wants cabin country, or so they think. They want to go north and go to the weekend cabin on the lake. But this southeastern chunk of the state is just a different landscape, kind of a paradise. To me, it's a paradise. I mean, and I grew up in cabin country, and it's not that I don't like cabin country, but if you gave me the choice of a free pass on a weekend, I would probably bounce around the gravel roads of Southeast Minnesota and, and uh, hit a bunch of different spots on the, on the trail stream. All right. So you grow up, you eventually get a job at that point. Did you still have time to fish? I mean, were the, were the trout streams still sort of calling you? I, it, the bug really got after me probably age 22, 23 when I, when I, got out of spin fishing and got into fly fishing and, and my career paths in education. So having the ability to have some summer freedom, uh, and at that point, no, no family, I was married, but with no children, uh, I fished a lot and I bounced around a lot. Um, I still try to bounce around a lot. I, I can tell you right now, as of March 14th, I've probably been out a half a dozen times and I've probably hit nine or 10 different streams. So I don't fish the same spot all the time. And I think that's the, that's the fun part too, with when you first get into it is just the, the bouncing around and all the different areas you can access and, and get on and, and see, uh, you know, where the fish are. So at what point then did you get into guiding? That's an interesting question. I never, that was never a lifelong pursuit. 
I kind of got into guiding about the same time the people decided that the internet wasn't a fad, <laughs> which is probably 97, 98. Uh, just got a computer, put out a website. My background being in teaching, I, I had always, the hard part with, with fly fishing for me was I had some peers and some mentors that are very dear to me and were very good to me and helped me a ton. There are also some people you meet along the way that maybe in, when you, when you, when you look back in hindsight, they didn't exactly give you information that was helpful or relevant. They made things super complicated, whether it's hatches or flies or bugs, or I, I took what I knew as a teacher and what I knew as a fly fisherman and just melded them together and said, you know what? I can probably teach just about anybody to, to do this. And in, and in the years I've got it, I've taught people as young as eight and I've had world war two veterans in their nineties out guiding. So I've, I've covered a lot of different age groups and, and ability levels, but I can tell you that if, if I take someone guiding, I'm going to teach them how to cast. I'm going to put them in a place that they're going to catch fish and I'm going to show them a good time. Do you mind if I ask who a couple of those mentors might've been? No, go ahead. The, the, probably the biggest was Tom Dornack, who in Southeast circles is kind of the trout. We, his nickname, Tom doesn't know this, but his nickname amongst his friends is he's, he's a trout warrior. And we'd say that affectionately, that he's the guy behind habitat improvement. He was the guy that did some of the first major stream restoration in Southeast Minnesota in, in the, in the mid to late eighties on, on a Crow Spring Creek in white in the whitewater area. And Tom was a very uh, influential person, almost drill instructor like. And I say that I say that with respect. But if you want to learn how to cast and learn how to fish, Tom was the guy in your ear, making sure that you did things correctly. Um, another mentor to me would be a guy named Norm Zimmerman. And if you've read some of Ross Mueller's books, Norm Zimmerman's mentioned a few times as one of the one of his trout buddies. Uh, I met Norm on a wintry day on the South Fork of the Root River, and we were the only two souls stupid enough to be out fishing in a snowstorm and this old guy in Wisconsin plates pulls up and he's just the nicest guy you'll ever meet and uh, ties some of the best stuff I've ever seen in my life. So he probably helped me uh, get into tying in terms of being good at it. You know, I, I could probably tie flies that catch fish, but they weren't very pretty. Norm, Norm is an artisan and he, his flies were just gorgeous. So he certainly influenced me to, t to be a little more patient and, and, be a little more meticulous in how your patterns look. So those two guys for sure have uh, certainly helped influence who I became as a fly angler. That's awesome. I love that. Mentors matter. <laughs> and, it's a, and sometimes you don't know what's going on when it's happening, right? But you're able right. to look back and say, that was my guy or that was mm -hmm. my gal. So, all right, 25 years of guiding, no pun intended. What lures a person to, to kind of stop fishing for themselves and instead impress that passion on other people? I think it's a simple answer for me. And that is the look on somebody's face when you put them on a piece of water after a 20 or 30 minute casting lesson and they drop a fly out there and a fish picks it up and they figure out how to land it. And they look at you like, I can't believe that just happened. Mm. And you, you, there's so many people who tell me at the end of the day, like, oh my God, that was so fun. Or I had such a great time. I didn't think I'd catch anything, which is, I always give my hard time. Like, well, that's pretty insulting to, you know, to your guide. I was pretty confident, but to me that, that is the pinnacle of what I do is just saying the look on people's face and then, you know, netting the fish, letting them hold it, take a picture. And most of them are pretty stunned by just the coloration of fish. Trout are pretty unique 
when you think of all the species of fish we have in Minnesota, when you start putting a trout in the net and taking a picture, they're they're stunning compared to a lot of our fish. And just the look on people's face that they they can do this too and they can be successful. All right. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the current stream conditions in the state. And I want to pick your brain a little bit on the state of the state of our legacy trout st- stream. Sound like a plan? Sounds good. All right. I'm Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. You are listening to the Minnesota Bound podcast, the stories behind the stories. And we have a lot of sponsors who help us get to you each week. And I want to give them a big thanks. Up first, the Minnesota Propane Association. Most people agree that we need to lower our carbon footprint while providing reliable and affordable energy. A diverse energy mix will provide reliability and affordability, which is extremely important during Minnesota's four distinct seasons. Fortunately, a clean energy solution for tomorrow is available today. That's ready to work alongside with other energy sources, and it's propane. Propane produces 43% fewer emissions than electricity generated from the U.S. grid. Propane is energy stored on site and independent from the vulnerabilities of the grid. And propane's benefits don't end there. Major advances are being made today for renewable propane that is compatible with the traditional propane and requires no additional infrastructure investments. Minnesota needs to use all our low-carbon alternatives, including propane, to safely provide energy, reliability, resiliency, and affordability. Propane, the right energy right now. To find out more about what propane can do for you, visit propane.com. Also, a shout-out to our friends at Connecticut Water. You know, spring is so close, and that means that the Shirk family will be back at the cabin sooner versus later, I hope. And that means Connecticut water in the woods. You see, last summer, we were lucky enough to add Connecticut at the cabin. And oh boy, what a difference. For as long as I can remember, we've dealt with that stinky, foul well water. But after a painless four-hour installation, we now have Connecticut soft water and also Connecticut's K5 drinking system. No more bottled water to try and make that early morning coffee. Great drinking water right out of our K5 tap. Our laundry no longer smells funny. And Connecticut Water cleaned up the showers and the dishes. The world's most efficient, worry-free water system. Visit Connecticut.com to find a dealer near you and join the Connecticut family. If you own a lake home or if you have a pond on your property, you need to call the Aquaside Company. Aquaside has been helping people maintain healthy lake shores and ponds for over 68 years. Aquaside products are easy to use and begin working right away. Aquaside is registered with both the Environmental Protection Agency and Department of Natural Resources. Don't let weeds overtake your lake or pond this summer. Call Aquaside today. They'll help you identify problematic weed types, assist with product selection, and calculate application rates. Aquaside will make sure lake fronts look great all summer long. You can call them at 1-800-328-9350 or go to Aquaside.com. Check with your state agency for local application guidelines. Dave Anderson fishes and guides on a seemingly endless number of Minnesota trout streams. Dave, I think a lot of people are surprised to know just how much fishable trout water you have down in your neck of the woods. It would probably surprise people that we are 
in the ballpark of 200 miles of fishable water. And a lot of that credit goes to uh, the Department of Natural Resources. They take a beating on a lot of variety of things, but I'm not going to beat them up on this one. They've done a great job in Minnesota of securing land easements. Uh, it's a it's a it's a hard task to convince landowners sometimes that you know we're going to pay you some money one time and one time only, and that people are going to have forever access to your stream. But I can tell you that there are people that come from out of state to visit Minnesota. Um, when you deal with some of the Western waters, whether it's trespass laws or rod fees, we don't have those things in Minnesota. You know, if you pay attention to the map, which is are, are pretty easy to understand and read, you have a lot of different opportunities in Southeast Minnesota to, to fish. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the streams and some of the habitat work, right? They've been through a lot of changes, say, mm-hmm. whatever, the last 150 years, right? Farming, at one point, logging, people, development, they have all impacted the water. Right. You know, in, in where, we're, where we fish in Southeast Minnesota, it isn't so much development impacts our water. Uh, it's definitely an agricultural area, a lot of row cropping, which does affect our streams, Um we do have a fair amount of silt in a lot of our watersheds, which is a product of tiling, which is a product of ag. Uh, I'd say one of the biggest challenges we've had the last 15, 18 years has been, uh, as they call them once in a century rains, well, we've probably had four or five of them in about a 10 or 12 year window. So the flooding takes an effect. It's a very soft terrain in Southeast Minnesota. This is not granite like the North Shore. These are not big, big uh, rocky watersheds like you encounter out West. They're pretty soft banks, limestone soft, farmland, black dirt. So when we get heavy rains, things have a tendency to really get out of control and, and you will see streams that have changed courses. You'll see streams that really can erode at some of these places. Habitat work has tr- traditionally been designed uh, to fix some of that, to remedy some of that, whether it's the rock structure or the wood structures that they put in, anything they can do to do bank stabilization and try to try to protect that stream from more erosion and more damage. And and it's a really fairly simple equation, right? We we don't have to sugarcoat it. You think about a row crop, you've got rows of plants, and in between, there's nothing but soil. So when it rains, and it rains enough. Some of that water is not soaking into the ground. And as it moves downhill, right, gravity takes some of the soil with it. And if right. there's enough rain, eventually it gets to whatever, the ditch, which leads to the culvert, which leads to the stream, which leads to the river, and eventually ends up in New Orleans. I mean, they talk about the massive delta down there. It is no secret. You can point to that soil and say some of that is coming from Minnesota. Definitely. And the tiling system too, Bill, is is vast in Southeast Minnesota. You know, if you drive through Southeast Minnesota after a major three, four, five inch rain, you may see standing water, but you won't see it in the fields. All those tiles end up, water goes downhill to the lowest point and that's going to end up in the river in some capacity. So the tiling effect does have a, a, a major impact on the water. I'd argue if you talk to guys who've done it as long as I have, the, the complaint we have right now is that the agricultural piece also has to do with the chemicals that get applied to those those crops. Well, they end up in the water as well. We've lost some major hatches in terms of consistency. Mayflies seem to be the one that have taken the the, the brunt of it. Um, caddis have not. Caddis are a, a different type of insect than mayfly, obviously, but the mayfly hatches have taken a hit in in our area over the last five, eight, ten years. And, and that you can point the finger at a lot of things, but I will point the finger that 
agriculture, how we do things in a farming capacity, the chemicals, the volume, uh, that has a major effect on our bugs. And we've had a, we've had a number of fish kills here the last two, two to five years. And while it's not been pinpointed on one person per se, indications are it's, it's egg driven as to why this happens. Really nitrogen and phosphorus are the two. And there's some talk, well, some of that is naturally occurring. Yes. But the vast majority really is coming from, um, that industry. And if you look at it, you know, previous state administrations have tried to implement the buffer system, right? That was a huge debate or discussion, a 33 foot buffer around every piece of water we have in the state. Is it realistic? No, but at least it started the conversation in what can alleviate both the chemicals and the soil erosion. And I see there are spots in Southeast Minnesota where you will find the the farming industry is very good about that, that they'll even do as far as a 50 foot setback uh, and leave the grass and the trees go between but you will also run into stretches where it's it's plowed and it's tilled right up to the edge. And during a major storm, you you can post storm, you can go to some of these streams and literally see how it's eroded to the point that the crops are almost yep. falling in the, the water. The corn is falling in the water. I've seen it a lot over right. the years. And I'm not, I am not trying to beat up ag here. That's not the point. But this is something that happens. So we can we can talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um And in theory, if you have specifically native prairie grasses are one of uh, the biggest positives. If you can create a buffer between the crop and the water, that's a filter that holds soil and also tends to suck up chemicals. Um, And that's the point. It's, It's probably a bit of a dream, you know, that might not be reality, but it would help some of our streams, no doubt. Yep. It would help a lot. And, and and to your point, the the buffer, if it can be a prairie grass, is a huge root base that does not erode. I think the problem lies with the maintenance involved with prairie grass that um, if you I know you're an avid bird hunter and I do a fair share in central Iowa, good prairie grass takes some maintenance. And I just don't know if the manpower is available uh, in terms of numbers of people getting out on streams and like doing controlled burns or planning and monitoring prairie grass in a perfect world that would be our buffer but uh it's just a hard one to pull off all right so talk about some of the rehab projects when when a crew goes in and you know rehabs a stream you hear about it what what are they doing so that's a that's an interesting process it it typically starts either at a trout unlimited type level or uh lassard sam's outdoor heritage council has been pretty generous to the trout groups about uh, giving money to those who bid on it. Um, it's, it's, it's like any project, you know, you start with a plan, you get bids, the bid gets picked. Um, but the bid has to be approved by the DNR. So if you, if people want to beat up the truck groups for poor habitat, you got to remember that in order for them to do any project, they have to get a permit from the DNR to do that. So the DNR actually holds the cards in this equation. So they'll, they'll direct the truck groups as to how they want a project to look, whether they want more wood, whether they want more sloping, whether they want plunge pools or more rock. Um, I would say my personal opinion has been the trend has been more to more wood, less rock. Uh, my concern with that is simple, that when we get these big water events in Southeast Minnesota, that wood is not going to hold. We've had several projects that have been completed and then have blown up 
flooded, ripped out, torn up. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of materials and labor that is basically washed down the river and you got to start over and do it again. Um, people complain about the rock structure bill that it looks golf course-ish is a, is a word I've heard. It looks too much like a golf course. And, and I get that it had, has a sterile look to it at first when it's done, but um, I can go show you projects all over Southeast Minnesota that are way older than the current projects that have held in place simply because the rock structure and how it was designed has withstood some of that pretty intense punishment it's taken over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. Yeah. And you know, the difference between the wood and the rock, I mean, wood, what is a bunch of different things, right? At its worst, it's almost like these bookshelf-looking structures that are built and buried in the stream, um, you know, to provide, in theory, cover under mm -hmm. the banks. But I've also, you know, torn waders on the old nails from those things that have decayed. I've seen them collapsed. Another kind of woody structure. They talk about, you know, taking stumps, right? The old stump thing. Throw a bunch of stumps in the corner where the rock or where the water is beating against, you know, an edge and turning, and those stumps will prevent erosion. But for the most part, I've seen over time that that stuff degrades. You talk about the deep root system of the prairie plants. Some of those roots are going down 15, 20, even 30 feet, right? That right. is a great source of stability you weave that into rock that gets silted in over time and i feel like at that point you've got some legacy structure you do and, and, and to your point there is no current hi model that is bulletproof or invincible it, it will fail under certain conditions it will deteriorate over time i fished a a very old uh project area a week ago in the we call them the cribs that you're talking about the bookcase structure yep. through through some serious flooding that project had been completely annihilated and the cribs were laying in the bottom of the river so what is the answer the answer is a couple couple things you can go back in spend the money get the manpower and, and redo that project you can do what's currently happening which is nothing or you can try a different approach which could be the the whole concept of we're going to go woody debris or we're going to do some some prairie grass restoration um it's an ongoing battle. Let's just put it that way. As soon as you get one or two projects done, there, there's three, three to six that need attention. Um, I would say in Southeast Minnesota, outside of the Hiawatha, Trout, uh, Hiawatha Valley of Trout Unlimited, that group did a pretty good job on the Crow Spring project in Whitewater in terms of maintenance. After a major flood, they'd go in with chainsaws, clear out the river, made sure the fencing was up for cattle. But that's very labor intensive. Um, you're talking you're going to have to get a lot of hours donated by your members to want to do that. Not everybody has the time or the the resources to do it. So when they were when they're on top of their game, that thing was aces all the time. I think when you talk about maintenance, there isn't much maintenance going on in projects. Once they're done, they're done and they're on to the next one and on to the next one. Again, a uh, issue of manpower and maybe more importantly money. Right. Exactly. Well, you just gave away one of your fishy tips, Crow Springs, which is the upper area of the middle branch of the Whitewater. There's a mouthful. Uh, you can go online, look at the state maps. Um, it is a wonderful place to fish and plenty of room for people to get out. Um, all right, Dave, we need to take just a quick little break here. Thank a few more sponsors. Um, but after we come back, let's talk about 
some of your fishiest secrets, right? <laughs> I'm guessing you probably have a fly or two or three or a technique that might help a few people catch a fish or two. Deal? I'll, I'll share a few. All right. A few. <laughs> I'm Bill Shirk, and you are listening to the Minnesota Bound Podcast, the stories behind the stories. Again, we have all these great partners who help us uh, get to you each week. Um, I want to thank the Minnesota Historical Society. Um, right now, on behalf of the Minnesota Historical Society, the History Center is presenting Sherlock Holmes, the exhibition. You can step into Victorian London and explore the world of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's world-famous detective. Seriously, you can. You can learn about the powers of observation, deduction, and the science while solving an interactive mystery. You can try hands-on gadgets and experiments that are based on real forensics and kind of make learning fun. See exactly how Sherlock influenced both real detectives and pulp pop culture. Last chance, the exhibit closes April 2nd. You can learn more at mnhs.org slash Sherlock MN. Also, a shout out to our friends at Starbank. Hi there, Ron Shera here for Starbank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Starbank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Starbank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. Starbank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that Starbank has to offer at starbank.net. Remember FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Okay, I've been lucky enough to fish alongside Dave Anderson, proprietor of the on-the-fly guiding service. And he's an all-around good guy, too. But each time... You and I are on the water catching fish. I, I always think, like, we're on some really good water, but I can only imagine there are spots you don't share with people. You must have your secrets. I think some of that comes down to there's stuff you're willing to share um, it with anybody because they still got to be able to tie flies on and go out and do things themselves. But there's also some stuff that you see or you fish or have have. Uh, maybe a few hidden 22, 24 inch fish that you're going to keep pretty tight lipped. Yeah. And, and that's part of the fun of this game, right? Is going out and finding your spots. And that's not, that never ends too. And you know, you can get caught in a rut of going to fish stuff you're familiar with. Um, but to me, the exploring part's fun. This is a great time of year to do that. By the way, we don't have much snow in Southeast Minnesota, it, it's a perfect time to put on your boots and get some miles in and see some stuff. It, it's not a, something you want to pull off in July when it's 85 degrees, but March, April, if you have the ability, I would say cover as much water as you can and go see some stuff. Years ago, I learned the hard way. I had taken a friend to show him one of my favorite spots I had discovered. You know, it was a couple of years before I decided, yeah, I should probably share this with somebody who can keep a secret. Weeks later, I was walking through the produce section at Byerly's Grocery Store in Edina, and I hear, dude, oh my gosh. And I look over across the orange rack, and there's a friend of the friend. 
looking at me, and he's like, don't worry. Your secret's good with me. And I bet the next three out of five times I was down on my little spot, that guy came walking out of the woods, and it totally changed my perspective on what you share and who you share it with. No, you're exactly right. I'll give you, I'll give you some of my thought on that. So as a, as a guide, it, a lot of it depends on where my clients are from. So living in the Rochester area, I do get a fair share of Mayo Clinic crowd. So if I get somebody who wants to go fishing and they're from out of state, I'm not afraid to probably show them things that uh, I would be hesitant to show somebody who's local, who wants to see some stuff because they're probably not coming back and they're, and if they tell somebody, they probably aren't going to be able to explain it anyway. So I, some of that depends upon to who they are and where they're from and what their goal is. I've had clients that have gone out with me and got their phones out and dropped pins, you know, and that, and that's fine. Yikes. But yeah, I can't prevent that. But you know, if, if you're hiring me just for pins, that's one thing. I hope you're hiring me because you want to learn how to fish or you want to have a good time or you want to have somebody show you the ropes a little bit. All right. So what's the trick? Um, trout fishing, especially with a fly rod, to a lot of people seems like a little bit of an overwhelming endeavor. But really, when you get used to it, it's not that hard, right? You're right. It's not that hard. I think the thing is, practice Practice matters. Um, I give people the analogy, you know, we'll go out in the stream and I'll take a client and I'll say, here, let me pick up the rod and show you a few things. And the comment is, oh my gosh, you know, you make it look so easy. And I'm like, well, I hope so. I've been doing this for 30 years. But the analogy I use is, I'm, I'm not an avid golfer, but if you put me out there with clubs, I'm not going to shoot par. It's the same with a fly rod. If you don't practice with it, you can't get good at it. So it's one of those things you got to put some time in uh, to really find. And the thing about that's unique is everybody has their stroke. You can attest to this for the people you fish with. How you cast is probably different than everybody else. You have your own unique style. You kind of got to teach people the basics of how the fly, fly rod operates. And from there, you got to also let them be who they are in terms of how they find their groove. Years ago, I used to do a little bit of casting instruction. I can remember being at a youth conservation day and there was a guy from one of the fishy conservation groups. I'll leave it at that. And he was kind of talking about teaching kids to use a fly rod. And I kind of followed this guy and I, I, I walked up and I said, okay, forget everything you just heard. Using a fly rod is not like flying the space shuttle. There are a couple simple things you can do, and we can work for five or ten minutes, and guess what? You're going to catch fish, mm -hmm. right? There are very simple casts, like a roll cast. If, mm -hmm. if you can stand with somebody in a stream or on a beach and spend five or ten minutes, they can sort of get the essence of it especially at short distances, and be effective with that cast. So from there, on a Minnesota trout stream, how do you help people catch fish? Are, are there easy, obvious flies that pretty much anyone can tie on and maybe have some success? I think that's a good question because I think people who maybe don't know a lot about the sport have watched a few YouTube videos or watched a river runs through it or something to that effect think you got to make these gigantic bomb casts and we're going to fish some dry flies. Um, the, the reality of that is I teach my clients how to nymph fish, which maybe sounds backwards because it's a little more complicated, but I have a belief in that is if you can, if you know how to nymph fish 
you will learn how to catch fish. And what is and, a nymph? And we're talking so nymph, fishing. All right. Yeah. So a nymph is anything that is subsurface, any, any bug that lives subsurface. The thing you got to remember about aquatic insects is they live most of their lives underwater. It's only when you get them to hatch, as we call it, or a dry fly where they're floating down the river and hopefully fish are rising to them. That is really pretty much the end stage other than trying to lay an egg and mates lay an egg and they die as well. So their, their lives are under the water. I, I personally find the, the one thing that people need to understand is if you can learn to nymph fish, you can learn to catch fish. And it's not always glamorous. It's not glorious. And uh, it's no different. People call it a bobber. Uh, it's called an indicator, which is no, nothing more than a foam bobber, I guess you could say. But it's kind of like fishing in a lake. You have your bait, you have a sinker, you have a bobber. It's the same with nymph fishing. You have a fly, you have some lead, and you have an indicator. It, the only difference is, is in a boat, you're, you're, you're firing it out there and you're waiting. When you fly fish, you're firing it out, and then you have to be two-handed and mend, mend the line back because it all floats back to you. So that's probably, outside of getting some casting essentials down, probably the biggest challenge people need to realize when they get into fly casting, yep. it's a two-handed sport. Yep. You, you, you have to be able to use both hands. And... I think just some of that fumbling and natural effect occurs often. Your brain and your hands don't work that fast unless you've done this often. And then it's just, it, it becomes natural. But a major tip for me is not only do people need to learn how to nymph fish, I'd say the biggest flaw I see with people that do fish nymphs is they don't put on enough lead. Meaning, and I don't fish lead lead, by the way, I fish tin. So we're adding weight to the whole setup to get flies down. And you can adjust it. You can go all the way to the bottom. You can you can go a little higher in your equation to run your flies higher. But you got to think about a fish's life, especially a trout. And you talk about fight or flight. They're not fighting anybody. And they're very skittish and very spooky. So you need to take caution and you need to make good casts and put the fly where the fish are. And typically, they're going to start at the bottom at the beginning of the day. And they're going to move up in the water column as as the day warms. And they're going to feed. And, and uh, that's pretty much rule of thumb, but is if you can learn how to nymph fish, you will learn how to catch fish. You're like a brother, I'm a different mother of my good <laughs> friend, Pat Dorsey out West. Right. He is a nymph fisherman and, and everyone wants, you know, the purist catch a wandering trout on a, you know, whatever size 24 mayfly dry third stage, but you can do that. But, you're going to catch a lot more fish at a lot of times down in the water where they're hanging out. So I, I love nymph fishing. I love dry fly fishing. But if, you know, you do a percentage here in Minnesota, it's probably like 80% nymph fishing. <laughs> you know, it just, I would agree with that. It just yeah, works. You know, and in, in, in April, I, I, I think I told you after, uh, in our communication prior to this, you know, I started to fish a few midges last week. The weather got warm. We had a hatch come off. So yeah, there's where you're fishing a little bit higher in the water column, either a dry or something that's an emerger. Um, but otherwise, in terms of hatches, April, May, early June in Minnesota has a tendency to be pretty consistent in terms of our hatches. Once we get into the doldrums of summer, that's when things get interesting for me because I'll fish more dries at random without a hatch. So uh, some searching patterns, some terrestrial stuff. Um, we get beetles, crickets, hoppers. Uh, so for me that in terms of dry flying, that is what I look forward to is, you know, watching trout come up and smash a hopper or a, or a beetle or an ant. Uh, but I'll nymph fish my guts out until they are ready to take those flies on top. 
All right. So for the person who's sitting at home, who's got whatever grandpa's fly rod and a box in the office, and this sounds cool. I might try this. If you had one fly, a fly, what would you pick? Can I pick two, one nymph and one dry? No, I said one. If you got right. two, I would have said two. Well, all right. What I will give you one in the water fly, one dry fly. Dry fly meaning a fly that floats on top of the water. Go ahead. The the nymph I would pick hands down that you can fish 24/7 365 and catch fish would be a scud. And a scud to put it in simple terms is an invertebrate that it looks like a shrimp. It looks like a freshwater shrimp. Uh, they proliferate like rabbits. They are all over good, healthy watersheds. For those of you who have ever pulled watercress out of a stream, you you can find dozens and dozens of scuds just flipping around. So the reason I choose that is it is a constant food source all year for, for trout. So they're not relying on a hatch. They're not relying on a seasonal bug. That is something that they see all the time. So I would pick a scud there. And then I would pick something, probably an elk caracatus, uh, we get more caddis hatches than mayfly hatches, and it just seems like caddis starts about April with the grays and blacks, and then it kind of moves into tan colored, and you can probably fish a tan caddis all summer, even without a hatch on, because right. they could probably think it's a hopper. They could think it's, you know, some sort of moth. It's a pretty good generic fly. Some guys would probably pick an Adams. I'd go caddis just because I feel like our caddis hatches are stronger and more consistent. And, and to give that some clarity, it's a little bit like a black lab. It's in the DNA of a black lab. If you throw something, they're going to go get it and bring it back to you. And trout are a little bit the same way. Um, they're just dialed in. When they see a bug floating, even if there's not this big hatch, a lot of times they just go, oh, I'm supposed to go eat that. And they you know, swim up and nip it, and boom, the fight's on. Right. Sometimes we overthink this. Uh, we got to match hatches and match bugs. And, you know, you got people seining the river and flipping over rocks, which, you know, I think some, all that is valuable, but I think sometimes you overthink it. You just got to make a good cast and put it in a spot where it maybe looks fishy. And you'd be surprised how many fish just happen to be looking up and to your point, look at it and say, you know, that's probably something I should eat before it goes by. In my case, it probably took a year of trial and error kind of teaching myself and that moment was about a four inch brook trout uh in a sand bottom stream that came out and finally ate one of my nymphs i think i had a six weight rod so it was all really pretty silly but it just changed my life and it's been magic ever since all right i've got kind of a new thing i've started here with the podcast you're one of my first so I have two questions that I'm going to ask all my guests. So for you, what, Dave, is your biggest outdoor moment? Like that one thing that just changed you permanently. Does something come to mind? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. I would say my, my favorite outdoor moment is not a trout story. It's the first time I, I shot a deer with a, with a bow and arrow. Mm. Uh, I was not raised in a hunting family per se. So I had some friends who were like, Hey, you know, you should get a bow and you should do this. It was just junky gear, aluminum arrows, bad camouflage. Uh, probably the wind was wrong. I mean, you, you could make a laundry list of things I did wrong, but I shot my first deer with a bow and it was a 
button bucket, what was probably about as big as the Black Lab you referenced. But that also set off a whole different uh, uh, passion for me, which is once the, once the trout season's done, it's, it's, it's all archery all the time, you know, until I hopefully bag one. And then it's, then it's all pheasants all the time in Iowa. So that one moment uh, probably changed my perspective of a new hobby uh, like no other. And I think the point is, oh my gosh, everything was wrong and led to everything being so right. That's the point. You can do it, right? That's exactly, that's what's magical. All right. The second question I have for you, and maybe you answered this, like everyone in this world has that single piece of outdoor gear, that one thing that is just tied to your DNA. It's not a widget. It's just this thing you covet. I don't know. It could be a shotgun. It can be whatever, a tent. Like, What is that one thing for you? The, probably the one thing that I own as a piece of gear that I covet is a, uh, I have a very, very nice Sage LL rod, which is the original in the 80s. For the fly rod guys, you know that late 80s, early 90s, Sage took off big time with the Sage LL. I actually have a Sage LL, and it was a wedding gift for my wife. So I still have that. Hmm. I don't fish it a lot, but I do take it out once or twice a year. Um, it's a kind of a prized possession of mine. It's not something I want to part with. I could probably get good price on it on eBay, but um, it's not a great <laughs> rod by today's standards. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have this like rocket ship quality, like some of your new $900,000 rods. But for me, it's, it, it means something because it was my first real quality, you know, non-Kmart fly rod when I first got into it. And it, it's, uh, it's kind of stood the test of time. So why don't you fish it? I, it's, it, that's a good question. It has sentimental value and I don't fish it a lot because I just don't want to ding it or break it. And I'm also, uh, because I'm a gear junkie and I could, we could do a segment on fly fishing gear because I, I could talk a lot about that. I just prefer to fish other things. I have, and it's not always brand new state of the art stuff. There's some unique niche stuff that doesn't cost an arm and a leg that I have fallen in love with. And uh, so I, I just, I gravitate to other things. Love it. All right. If people want to find you and try to find an open window of time to share a stream mm-hmm. with you, where do they find you? They can find me on my website, which is ontheflyguiding.com. Otherwise, look for all those secret spots in southeastern Minnesota. And once you get there, walk another two miles back into the woods, and maybe they'll be lucky enough to find you. Hopefully. I, I'm going to... I, I walk a lot. Uh, my Fitbit is blown up with all the miles I put on, but... Uh, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to get away from the road and go see some stuff that is off the beaten path. Dave, you're awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I sure hope we get to fish together soon. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me. All right. Well, there you go. That does it for the Minnesota bound podcast, the stories behind the stories. Again, a big shout out to all the sponsors who help us uh, get to you each week. Uh, of course, our good friends at Connecticut water treatment systems. We'd also like to thank the Minnesota Historical Society, the Minnesota Propane Association, and Starbank. Until next week, don't forget to introduce a kid to the great outdoors and maybe just maybe get him a fly rod too. Mm-hmm.